Now the most solemn moment of the day was approaching. The games were to begin. Already before the entrance of the royal family, the curiosity of the public had been excited by the competitors of different nationalities lined up on the track. All eyes were drawn towards them, and nobody could help admiring the strength and beauty of their youthful forms. The sound of the bugle announced the beginning of the first contest. Arlabos Aninos, the Olympic Games official report, 1896. The modern Olympic Games began in Greece and rode the wave of nostalgia given by their namesake, but they still embraced the culture of the late 19th century without worry, and for good reason. In the games of antiquity, only free-born Greek men could participate, though not if they came from a town which failed to pay the appropriate tribute to Jupiter or decline the Olympic truce, nor if they had lost their civil and political rights. Implementing that rule alone for the modern games would have ended Kubertin's chances at an international competition. In the ancient games, married women weren't permitted to compete nor even attend the games as spectators. While Kubertin agreed that only men should compete in the games, there was no reason to purposely hinder the popularity and fan base of the Olympics. This is just my own speculation, but Kubertin wanted packed stadiums, fanfare in the streets, and crowds to shake the earth with their cheering. He wanted the revival of the games to be a big deal. Whether or not that desire was a motive or played any factor in not restricting who could attend, banning women from the stands certainly wouldn't have helped. There were other changes, too. From the 15th Olympiad in 720 BC onward, apart from the horse races, all other events had athletes compete naked. The modern games left that trend in antiquity. The first recorded event of the ancient games was the 200-meter race in 776 BC. The 400-meter race was added in 724. The Dolichus, a race about three miles in length, was added in 720. Wrestling in the pentathlon in 708. Boxing in 688. Four-horse chariot racing in 680 and the Pancratian, most similar to modern Krav Maga, was added in 648 BC. That last event, which is described as boxing with wrestling, had only two rules. Competitors could not bite each other, nor could they gouge out each other's eyes. Besides that, it was pretty much unrestricted hand-to-hand combat, which only came to an end when one of the competitors motioned with his hand as a sign of acknowledged defeat. While the modern games do not incorporate chariot races or the Pancratian, they do include essentially the heart of the ancient games. Exhibitions of the strength and physique of the human body and the grit and determination of the human spirit. The 1896 Athens games were no exception. Some events, like the marathon, might have surprised a competitor of antiquity. Some sports, like shooting and cycling, would have stunned him. But like the ancient games, the track and field events anchored all the others. The first event of the revived Olympic Games was the preliminary heat of the 100-meter race. The 21 competitors were divided into three heats. The official report only lists the top two competitors who advanced to the final from each heat, so there are discrepancies concerning the other competitors. But we do know that the 100-meter race, a highlight of the Olympic Games which brings to mind names like Jesse Owens, Carl Lewis, and Usain Bolt, was dominated by the Americans, who, due to a scheduling mix-up, had arrived in Athens the night before. Picture the scene. Seven men line up side by side on a dirt track. Some pose like a wide receiver, others squatting as though ready for a tackle. The spikes beneath their light leather shoes grounding them to the earth in this moment. Their cotton flannel shirts are tucked into their knee-length shorts 
with a number pinned across each man's chest. Around them, the marble of the stadium peeks through the crowd of 70,000. Cheers ring out in a melting pot of languages. The men on the line narrow their focus. The noise fades as the official raises his arm, pistol in hand. seconds later, American Francis Lane crosses the finish line, followed a half second later by the Hungarian, Alios Sokoli. The crowd erupts at the completion of the first race of the revived games. Though the race was only preliminary, some like to say that Francis Lane was the first modern Olympic winner. Others reserve that title for the first victor of a final round, but I'll let you decide who should hold that place in history. Mere moments after the excitement of the first heat, The second group found their marks, again standing to various degrees, arms bent at their sides. As if to replay the glory lived in his teammate, American Thomas Curtis matched Lane's time of 12.2, followed by Alexandros Halkakondelis of Greece. If the adrenaline of the crowd had dulled at all after the completion of the first two heats, it would soon return. In the third heat comes a disruption to the rhythmic repetition of the previous races, Among the upright competitors with their arms bent, Thomas Burke crouches, his head bent to his knees, his arms straightened as his hands palm the track, as if to soak up the energy around him. The pistol fires and Burke crosses the line in just under 12 seconds. German competitor Fritz Hoffmann comes in second with a time of 12.6. Like a short-fused firework, the opening event of the Olympic Games came and went suddenly, but nonetheless gave off a burst of excitement and glory. These three races set the tone for the games. A blend of techniques and cultures on display. The human body pushed to greatness and refined by challenge. The athletes rest and look to their next events, pushing the 100 meter to the back of their minds until the final race on April 10th. But this moment proved something no one could ignore. The games had returned. Immediately following the preliminary heats of the 100 meter, was the triple jump, also known as the hop, skip, and jump. Despite the instructive name, there were no rules on the technique the competitor must use to complete the jump. Ten athletes competed in the event, and there were no preliminary rounds. The winner of the triple jump would officially be crowned the first victor of the Games. According to Olympic.org, the official website of the Olympic Games, the results of the triple jump were as follows. American James Connolly, 13.71 meters. French Alexander Tuferi, 12.7. Greek Ionis Persicus, 12.52. However, the official report recounts the event differently. Each competitor jumped in turn. The superior skill, however, of the American Connolly was soon recognized by everyone. A young Frenchman brought up in Athens, Mr. Tuferi made himself remarked by his extraordinary agility. Mr. Persicus was considered by everybody the most graceful jumper. Mr. Connolly won by a jump of 12 meters, 70 centimeters. Mr. Persicus came in third by a jump of 12 meters. There's a full meter difference between what the official report indicates and what is commonly attributed to Connolly and set as the first Olympic record for the triple jump. Perhaps the official report simply lists the length which Connolly beat to win first place and which Persicus beat to win third without listing the results of their specific jumps. I don't know why this discrepancy exists, but while the lengths of the jumps might vary... The results do not. On a black tablet, the exploit of the American Victor Connolly was duly inscribed. 
and in compliment to his nationality, the American flag was hoisted in the center of the arena. After 1,503 years, the Olympics added another champion to their history. To the victor went a silver medal, an olive branch, and a certificate. Second place received a bronze and copper medal, a laurel branch, and a certificate. The next event was the 800-meter preliminary race. The 14 competitors were split into two heats. No Americans competed in this event, and the three Greek competitors were placed in the same heat, which could not have pleased the crowd. In the first heat, Australian Edwin Flack, Hungarian Nandor Dani, German Friedrich Tron, and Englishman George Marshall ran twice around the track, finishing in that order. Flack set an Olympic record of 2 minutes, 10 seconds, followed quickly by Donny. In the second heat were two Frenchmen, Albin Lermuzeau and Jor de la Nazaire, and three Greeks, Dimitrios Golemis, Angelos Feitzis, and Dimitrios Tobrov. Lermuzeau won the heat with a time of 2 minutes, 16 and a half seconds, with Golemis right on his heels. The final between the qualifiers was set for April 9th. Following the 800 meter was the discus throw. Pierre de Coubertin wanted an international sports festival, and he got it. Eleven competitors represented seven nationalities in the event that was quintessentially Greek and harkened back to the ancient games. The sport itself seemed foreign to some of the competitors as they awkwardly threw the discus in the spirit of trying something new. As for the Greeks, they were born for it. The official report gushes. Mr. Verses in particular showed a harmony and a dignity in his attitudes which would not have disgraced an ancient discus thrower. He himself is beautiful of form like an ancient statue. The competition whittled down to three. The American, Robert Garrett, and the Greeks, Peniotis Parskopoulos and Soterios Vases. Despite his harmony and dignity, Vases settled for third and left his countrymen to duke it out with the foreigner. Another American athlete, Thomas Curtis, wrote about this event in his book, High Hurdles and White Gloves. In the discus, they were doomed to disappoint by a performance which illustrates, as well as anything else, the naivety of the contests. We had on our team a Princeton representative, Robert Garrett, a very powerful, long-armed athlete who had never seen a discus, let alone thrown one, but who decided to enter the event just for the sport of it. When the moment came, the Greek champion assumed the attitude of the discovolus, which, incidentally, is a very trying and complicated attitude, and proceeded to make three perfect throws in the classic manner. Garrett, with no knowledge of form or of how to skim the awkward discus, caused infinite merriment by running up to the mark and completely flubbing his first two attempts. On his third attempt, aided by his great strength, great length of arm, and an enormous amount of good luck, he succeeded in sailing the discus to a new record, beating the champion by almost a foot. This was a tragedy for Greece, but high comedy for us. In that final throw, Pareskival Pouyos's discus hit the 28.95 meter mark. Garrett's hit 29.15. The difference was almost eight inches, and the stars and stripes rose once again in the Marvel Stadium. The preliminary heats for the 400 meter race closed out the first day of the games. Day two began with the fencing bouts in the Zapian, an exhibition hall constructed for the games and named after its benefactor, Evangelos Zappas. These bouts were foil events, representing one of the two different types of weapons which would appear at these games. The other type, the saber, is the only weapon to appear at every Olympic Games since 1896. Epe was introduced to the Olympics in 1900, rounding out the sport. 
The foil bouts continued for a couple of hours until all 12 pairs of competitors completed their bouts. To win, a fencer must touch his opponent three times. At the conclusion of these amateur bouts, the foil masters, Frenchman Maurice Peronet and Greek Leonidas Pyrgos, took their places on the floor. As mentioned in the previous episode, fencing was the only sport to include professional athletes. However, these fencing masters competed in a separate competition from the amateurs. The concept of amateurism will be discussed in depth in the politics of the games, but at its most basic level, the master fencers were allowed since most fencers were military officers. They are what's called gentleman amateurs. The official report details the results of this first professional competition. The combat of those two champions excited the interest of the audience in the highest degree. Both showed great mastership, and the contest remained a long time undecided, but at last, Mr. Pyrgos proved his superior skill by touching his opponent for the third time whilst he himself had only been touched once. As Mr. Pyrgos was the first Greek who had carried off the victor's crown since the beginning of the games, one can easily imagine with what frenetic applause he was greeted from all sides. The fencing bouts concluded by noon, and by 2.30, athletics began in the stadium. The first contest was the preliminary heats for the obstacle race, also known as the 110-meter hurdles. According to the official report, similar to the discus, This race was unknown to the greater part of the spectators and excited therefore great interest amongst them. Some of the runners came to grief at the onset. The report doesn't elaborate on the grief of the athletes. Did they get tripped up by the hurdles? Did they bow out before running the race? But what is known is that of the initial eight competitors, Englishmen Grantley Goulding, Hungarian Alios Sokoli, and Americans Thomas Curtis and William Wells Hoyt, advanced to the final, which was set for the last day of the Games. Following these preliminary heats was the long jump, and since only half of the listed 18 competitors took part, the event was a final. Those who competed were Greeks, Alexandros Halkakondelis and Athanasios Skaltoyanis, Swede, Heinrich Quaver, German, Carl Schumann, Frenchman, Alexander Tufery and Alphonse Grisel, and Americans, Ellery Clark, Robert Garrett, and James Conley. If prizes were awarded for a first through third place as they are today, the Americans would have swept the podium, with Clark's 6.35-meter jump earning him a medal and Garrett and Connolly finishing with 6.18 and 6.11 meters, respectively. For the third time, the now-familiar American flag rose with the sound of cheers. Immediately following the success of this event, the Americans cheered once again for their countrymen, Thomas Burke and Herbert Jameson, in the 400-meter race. Burke won with a time of 54.2 seconds, finishing eight yards ahead of Jameson. Jameson crossed the line next in 55.2 seconds, securing a souvenir of the Games with his second-place medal. Next was the shot put. This game, which is excessively popular in Greece, excited general interest. Of the 15 competitors who had inscribed their names, however, only seven took an actual part in it. Five competitors retired after a little while. Only Miltiades Guskos and Robert Garrett kept up the sport for a considerable length of time. The sympathies of the greater part of the audience very naturally went with the former. The king and queen even showed their interest in the gallant Greek champion by applauding each of his throws most heartily. Unfortunately for the home crowd, the foreigners once again took the prize. Garrett's 11.22-meter throw ultimately outlasted both of Guskos' attempts, though by only a few centimeters. Just when it seemed as though the International Olympic Games were merely the USA Olympic Invitational, 
The next sport, weightlifting, had no American participants. The first event in this sport was the two-hand lift, in which each competitor would attempt to lift a barbell with both hands. Viggo Jensen of Denmark and Lonston Elliott, a Scotsman representing Great Britain, tied for first at 11.5 kilograms, or about 246 pounds. But, according to the judge, Prince George, Jensen had a clean lift while Elliott had moved his foot, so Jensen deserved the gold. Lawrence Levy, a British weightlifter who served on the international weightlifting jury for the Games, disagreed that form should play any factor as both men had successfully lifted the same amount. Levy offered instead that the men should lift a heavier weight to determine the winner. The prince agreed, but there were no heavier weights immediately available. Makeshift weights were added to the barbell, and poor Jensen had to take two lifts as Levy objected his first attempt. While trying to raise 112.5 kilograms, Jensen injured his shoulder, only to find out that neither of his extra lifts was necessary as the form of the lift was an acceptable tiebreaker and he was indeed Denmark's first Olympic champion. The next event was the one-hand lift, which is the same premise but one-handed, and the lift had to be performed successfully with each hand. Jensen's injury prevented him from shining in this event, and he was only able to lift 57 kilograms, while Elliot blew away the competition by lifting 71, a difference of nearly 31 pounds. The Danish and British flags were hoisted in succession amidst the vociferous cheers of the Danish and English visitors, in which the Greeks joined heartily. During this contest, a curious incident, proving the extraordinary muscular strength of Prince George, happened. A servant was ordered to remove the weights, which seemed a difficult task for him. The popular prince came to his assistance, picked up the heaviest weight, and threw it with the greatest ease to a considerable distance. The last event of the second day was the 1,500-meter race, in which the Australian, Edwin Flack, became the first Olympic champion from down under with a time of 4 minutes 33.2 seconds, finishing 5 meters ahead of American Arthur Blake. Day 3 began with dreary weather and the Army Rifle 200-meter. 150 Greeks and 10 foreigners signed up for the contest. Such a large pool of competitors meant that any determination of the victor would have to wait until the following day. The preliminary matches for lawn tennis also took place that morning in a tent near the columns of the Temple Jupiter. The velodrome held a 100-kilometer cycling race in which competitors lapped the track 300 times. The interest of the public, very great at first, fell off after a little while, for the spectacle of seeing the cyclists whirl by at full speed became rather monotonous. Three hours, eight minutes, and 19 seconds after the start of the race, Frenchman Leon Flameau crossed the finish line victoriously, becoming the first French Olympic champion and the second French Olympic medalist behind his countryman, Alexander Tuferi. April 9th, day four of the Games, started where the previous day left off. Padelis Karasevdas, a Greek law student, won the 200-meter military rifle match with 40 hits. His countryman, Pavlis Pavlidis, came in second with 38 hits. Lawn tennis came and went without a final result and would have to continue another day. Fencing picked back up with the Sabre individual. The Greeks, Iannis Yeryedis and Telemachos Karakolos, placed first and second. The 800-meter began in the stadium, and though the two best runners from the preliminary heats advanced, Frenchman Alban Lemerzo opted out of this race to prepare for the marathon, leaving three competitors. This would have been great news for today's Olympians, a guaranteed medal. But since only first and second place earned a medal, there was still very much a race to be run. 
Australian Edwin Flack finished in 2 minutes, 11 seconds flat, followed less than a second later by the Hungarian Nandor Dani. Greek Dimitrios Golimis, 95 yards behind Dani, finished in 2 minutes, 28 seconds. The stadium's next six contests were the first gymnastics events of the modern games. The competition began with the team parallel bars, and three teams competed. The German team, a Greek team from the National Association of Athens, and a Greek team from the Panhellenian Association. The official report describes the event. The German, as well as the Greek teams, showed in their attire their national colors. The Greeks wore light blue and white, the Germans black and white. The Germans carried off the first prize, having gone through their difficult exercises with a precision and regularity that everybody recognized the superior training they had received. The admiration of the crowd showed itself in loud cheering. For the first time since the beginning of the festival, the German flag was hoisted and saluted with respect. The next contest was the Team Horizontal Bars, in which only the German team competed. The vault followed this with 17 competitors from various nations, mostly Hungary and Germany. For 100 years, the vault used in the Olympic Games was the pommel horse, with the pommels, or handles, removed and the holes filled in. It wasn't until the early 2000s that a new vault table was created and introduced out of safety concerns for the athletes. With that in mind, perhaps it's more impressive that Carl Schumann and many Olympians in the decades after him were able to beat an event which could have easily beaten them. In second place came Swiss competitor Louis Zutter. In the next event, the pommel horse, Zutter definitively earned his place in history as an outright Olympic champion, with Hermann Weitgartner of Germany finishing second. Following this came a victory for the home crowd in the ring exercises. The result of that contest was an agreeable surprise to everybody, for the victory this time was carried off by Ioannis Mitropoulos, a member of the National Association of Athens. He, as well as Mr. Prosykis, the other Greek competitor in this contest, gave proofs of great skill. The announcement of the jury was received with such frantic applause, such enthusiastic shouts, that even the king could not help joining in it. When the Greek flag was seen waving over their heads, a new fit of enthusiasm seized the people. Eyes were wet with tears, hats were thrown into the air, handkerchiefs and flags were waved, and shouts of God save Greece, God bless the nation resounded from all parts of the stadium. The last event of the day was the individual horizontal bars, won by Germans Hermann Weitgartner and Alfred Flateau in first and second place, respectively. Day five began with as much excitement as day one. Streets filled quickly with anticipation. Spectators sought out the best places as though it was an event in itself, as day five was the day of the marathon. Since the day on which the revival of the Olympic Games in Greece had first been mentioned, the race from Marathon to Athens had been a subject of most fervent interest to the people. It was, so to say, the crowning point of the Olympic Games. If only a Hellene would carry off the first prize in that race. If only the cup of Marathon would be gained by a child of the soil, was the ardent wish of every Greek. Historical traditions were also remembered with pride by the whole nation, the famous messenger from the battlefield of Marathon, who had only been able to exclaim, Rejoice, Athenians! Victory is with us! before he fell dead to the ground. A victim of his overexertion was in all minds. One can therefore easily imagine how eagerly the public had been looking forward to the events of the day. Quick interjection here. No one was concerned about the modern marathon runners possibly dying of overexertion? Okay, continue. All Greeks had been anxious to show their lively interest in this contest, some of them in a most original way by promising all kinds of rewards to the victorious champion, should he be a Greek. 
Some hotel owners had pledged themselves to give him board and lodging free of expense, some for a fixed term of years, some for his whole lifetime. Tailors, barbers, hatters offered their services for nothing. Presents of every description were promised to him. We'll get to the marathon in a bit, but first, the other events of the day. Gymnastics concluded with the individual parallel bars followed by rope climbing. In the former, Alfred Flatow of Germany and Louis Zetter of Switzerland were the victors. In the latter, Greeks Nicholas Andriakopoulos and Thomas Sinaikis brought another set of wins to the home team's tally. Occurring simultaneously with these events was the 25-meter Army pistol shooting match. First and second place went to the American brothers John and Sumner Payne, respectively. By the afternoon, the stadium had filled with about 70,000 spectators, with many overflowing outside and lining the streets to the entrance. Before this crowd, six competitors lined up for the final 100-meter race. Thomas Burke won it in 12 flat, with Fritz Hoffmann of Germany finishing in 12.2 seconds. Had third place received a prize, it would have gone to both Hungarian Alios Sokoli and American Francis Lane for their tie at 12.6 seconds. The high jump was next, and the Americans Ellery Clark, Robert Garrett, and James Connolly finished in the top three, just as they had in the long jump. Clark's 1.81-meter jump put him firmly ahead of Garrett and Connolly, who tied for second at 1.65 meters. The final for the 110-meter hurdles followed with only two of the four qualifying competitors. I imagine that Zuccoli chose to focus on the 100-meter and William Hoyt on the pole vault rather than participate in this race. The remaining competitors, American Thomas Curtis and Englishman Grantley Goulding, nearly tied, with Curtis running a 17.6 and Goulding a 17.7. According to reports, Curtis was a mere five centimeters ahead of Goulding when he crossed the finish line. In the pole vault, the lack of regulation on athletes' equipment perhaps further aided the American victors. The superior skill and training of the two Americans was soon recognized by everybody. They had also brought with them from America two poles of extraordinary strength, which enabled them to jump to a fabulous height. The Americans began their vaults with the bar at 2.8 meters. The rest of the field couldn't clear 2.7. The other competitors realized rather quickly that theirs was a fight for third place, and many settled for watching the Americans duke it out. William Hoyt solidified his victory by clearing 3.3 meters, while Albert Tyler finished clearing 3.2. Their celebrations were interrupted as the winner of the marathon entered the stadium. The previous night, the night of day four, the 25 competitors who committed themselves to running the marathon traveled down from Athens to the city of the event's namesake and spent the night there. A brief digression of things to know before we cover this race. First, prior to 1908, the marathon race was not 26.2 miles. It was about 25 miles, or roughly 40 kilometers. We'll learn in a later episode why the change in distance occurred, but for now just know that this race was a tad shorter than you've known it to be. Second, this was not the first modern marathon. Greece hosted the Pan-Hellenic Games in March of 1896, a month earlier, to qualify its athletes for the Olympics. At these qualifying games, 20-year-old Herlos Vasilakos became the first winner of a marathon race, finishing with a time of 3 hours, 18 minutes. He was one of the competitors in the first Olympic marathon, to which we now return. At 2 p.m. on day 5 of the games, the runners gathered at Marathon Bridge, waiting for Colonel Papadiamontopoulos to fire the starting gun. 25 men lined up on the bridge. 
Soldiers stood nearby, tasked with watching the course of the race. Behind the competitors were medical carts, which would follow them for the duration of the race, ready to assist if necessary. Were the runners nervous for the race alone, or for what might happen by the end of it? The starting gun went off, and the race was underway. Albin Lermuzeau reached the town of Pekermi, the halfway point about 12 miles from Marathon, in 52 minutes. Following behind came Edwin Flack, Arthur Blake, and Hungarian Yula Kellner. Several runners who reached Bikermi after Lermuzeau gave up at that town, the competition proving too much for them. 23-year-old Spyridon Luis of Greece, upon his arrival at Bikermi, asked about the runners ahead of him. Allegedly, when he learned the length of their lead, he said calmly, Never mind. I will overtake them and beat them all. I'm not sure if his confidence was in his own stamina or the lack of stamina of his competitors. Regardless, things looked up for him as Arthur Blake bowed out two miles past Bikermi. Herolos Vasilakos took third, with Flack and Lermizo still ahead of him. After the town of Havarti, which is 3.5 kilometers or about two miles from Bikermi, the terrain began to shift as the runners neared the foothills of the Hemetis mountain range. In climbing the hill, the valiant Frenchman showed signs of fatigue. Whilst his friend, Mr. Giselle, who had followed him on bicycle, tried to restore him, Mr. Flack passed and overtook him. Louise also drew nearer and nearer, accompanied by a great number of peasants who formed, so to say, a guard of honor for him. After the 32nd kilometer, Mr. Lermuzeau fell to the ground and had to be taken up by one of the carriages. By the 33rd kilometer, 20 and a half miles from Marathon, Spyridon Lewis passed Flack, thus moving himself into first place. Louis led Flack by about 20 steps for three kilometers. Following Flack was the Hungarian, Kellner, and two Greeks, Basilakos and a man by the name of Belokos. Just outside the village of Abelokepi, with about 3.5 kilometers or two miles left to go, Louis surged even farther ahead of Flack. At that, the Australian threw in the towel and was picked up by one of the medical carts. Not surprisingly, Louis was the first to arrive at the Rosarios Ecclesiastical School of Athens, one kilometer from the stadium. When he arrived, he was hailed as the victor and a cannon signaled the crowd in the stadium. There was a bit of a delay in the message's reception, as the official report explains. In the stadium, meanwhile, the expectations of the audience was raised to the highest pitch. After half past four, signs of impatience could no longer be restrained, and nobody cared any longer for watching the interesting sport of pole jumping. Suddenly, rumors spread that Mr. Flack was first. Mr. Goderick, a bicyclist, having brought the news. Sadness and defeat painted itself on the faces of the crowd, and a deep silence fell on the audience. But suddenly, the starter entered the stadium and, walking up to the royal seats, announced to their majesties that Luis, a Greek, had won the race. The news spread with the rapidity of lightning, and the excitement which followed is more easily imagined than described. I'm not sure what sporting event comes to mind for you. But whatever it is, many of us can relate in some sense to what the crowd in Athens experienced. It's the moment when a crowd of 70,000 leap as one into the air. When 70,000 voices ring out in cheers. When you realize you've just witnessed an event that will make its way to the history books. This was that moment. After running for two hours, 58 minutes, and 50 seconds, Spyridon Lewis was crowned the winner of the first Olympic marathon. Herolos Vasilakos, the winner of the first modern marathon race, came in second place. Spyridon Belokos entered the stadium in third place three hours, six minutes, and 30 seconds after the starting gun.
However, it was discovered that Belikos rode in a carriage for part of the race. He was disqualified upon the news. Though third place was not awarded, the Hungarian, Kellner, who finished three minutes after Belikos, still found his spot in history thanks to Belikos's DQ. After such an exciting event as the marathon, which was made even more joyful by a Greek winning it, it seems unfair for any competition besides this one to close out day five. But I wasn't in charge of the bulletin, so we now turn to the last event of the day, Greco-Roman wrestling. Unfortunately for the five wrestlers, the energy of the crowd garnered by the marathon dissipated. The first match between Hungarian Momchilo Tapavica and Greek Stefanos Christopoulos carried on for quite some time until finally Tapavica gave up. The second match between German Carl Schumann and Englishman Lonston Elliott was the opposite. This contest was a very short one, for the strongly built German, grasping the handsome Englishman who was fully a head taller than he, stoutly round the waist, threw him on the ground in the twinkling of an eye. As there were five competitors, Schumann was given a bye and Greek Yerios Titas faced his countryman Christopoulos. The crowd was understandably upset by the bracketing and vocally displeased that the two Greeks had to square off while the Germans sailed into the final. Nevertheless, the contest was continued for some time and ended in the victory of Mr. Titas, who threw Mr. Christopoulos to the ground with such energy that he received some injury on the shoulder, which, though slight, disabled him for the rest of the games and confined him several days to his bed. The final match began between Schumann and Titas, but as the sun began to set and the crowd began to leave, the match was halted and postponed for the following morning. When it resumed on day six, the crowd was noticeably smaller, even though the event was free admission. In fact, all events after the marathon had dwindled in enthusiasm. Schumann won the match to the disappointment of the home crowd. The shooting competitions continued from morning to mid-afternoon. Sumner Payne won the 30-meter free pistol, but neither he nor his brother could compete in the 25-meter competition due to the caliber of their pistols. Apparently, their armament did not include a 45, and they turned down an offer to use competitors' pistols. Captain Iannis Frangaudis won the 25-meter with Yerios Orphanides coming in second. The 300-meter rifle competition, which concluded on day 7, finished in the inverse order. Meanwhile, the swimming events took place at the Bay of Z where competitors swam in the calm, lake-like waters. The 18-year-old Hungarian Alfred Hayosh won the 100-meter freestyle in 1 minute 22.2 seconds. Iannis Malokanis won the 100-meter freestyle held exclusively for sailors of the Royal Navy. His time of 2 minutes 20.6 seconds makes me wonder if one of the 100-meter times was recorded incorrectly, or if Hayosh just showed up the Greek Navy. Next was the 500-meter, in which only three of the 29 pledged swimmers competed. The Austrian, Paul Newman, beat both of his Greek counterparts and won in 8 minutes, 12.75 seconds. The last event was the 1,200-meter, which Alfred Hayosh won with a time of 18 minutes, 22.5 seconds, finishing about 100 meters and over two minutes ahead of the second-place swimmer. For this race, the competitors were carried by boat farther out into the bay. The distance and the water temperature made the event extremely difficult. Allegedly, after winning the race, Hayosh admitted, I must say that I shivered at the thought of what would happen if I got a cramp from the cold water. My will to live completely overcame my desire to win. Cycling events began in the afternoon with the two-kilometer race, in which competitors circled the track six times. Frenchman Paul Masson won in four minutes, 58.2 seconds. 
He also won the 10-kilometer race, circling the track 30 times in 17 minutes, 54.2 seconds. And the sprint, finishing the solitary lap in 24 seconds. That afternoon, lawn tennis concluded with Irishman John Bolin winning singles under the flag of Great Britain and also winning doubles with German Friedrich Traun. The execution of these tennis matches could hardly be dreamed up in today's Olympic Bulletin. For starters, the participants included Edwin Flack, George Marshall, Friedrich Traun, and George S. Robertson, all of whom came to the Olympics for track and field events. The list also included Hungarian weightlifter and wrestler Mamcilo Tabavica, and the winner, John Bolin, he had only come to watch, not participate. We'll learn more about these men, among many others, in the next episode, but I hope this gives you an idea of how different that first Olympiad was compared to more recent iterations. Apart from the conclusion of the 300-meter rifle competition mentioned earlier, the only event on day 7 was the bicycle race to Marathon and back, about a 54-mile journey. The winner, Aristides Constantinides, overcame a bicycle breakdown and a crash and used three separate bikes over the course of his ride before reaching the finish line in 3 hours, 22 minutes, and 21 seconds. As one can imagine, to have Greeks win both the foot race and the bicycle race for Marathon greatly excited the home nation. Day 8 was supposed to include a boat race, but the high winds and stormy weather prevented that competition altogether. It did, however, include a grueling 12-hour endurance race in the velodrome, which began at 5 a.m. Six cyclists began the race, and three dropped out before noon. By late afternoon, only two competitors remained. Adolf Schmal of Austria, and Frederick Keeping of Great Britain. Both champions bore strong signs of the long strain of exertion they had undergone. They were nearly exhausted for want of food, having only had time to snatch a mouthful here and there. Their legs had swelled, and on the whole, they presented a piteous sight. At the end of the 12 hours, Schmal had biked more than 183 miles. Keeping was just one lap behind him. The Austrian flag was raised and the competitions of the first modern Olympic Games came to an end. The distribution of the prizes was delayed a day due to weather, but when it finally happened, 10 days after the opening of the Games, it represented the success of the ambitious endeavor. While national medal counts weren't tallied during or after the Games, and tracking the count is tricky due to reasons we'll touch on in a later episode, by my count, excluding third-place finishes, the top three countries were Germany, Greece, and the U.S., with 31, 22, and 15 medals, respectively. With that, a few speeches from notable Greeks and a farewell banquet the following day, the games officially closed. The foreign competitors soon left the land of antiquity for their own sporting fields, leaving, no doubt, just as changed by their adventure as the world would soon be. This episode was written and produced by Olivia Cheney. The intro music is from Aaron Copeland's Fanfare for the Common Man. The sound effects and theme song are from zapsplot.com. Primary source quotes are read by Cameron Cheney. You can find him on Fiverr as Moose Gone Mad. The transcript for this episode of The Games is available at thegamespodcast.wordpress.com. If you have any questions or comments about this episode or any episode of The Games, feel free to reach out via the WordPress site or through Instagram by searching at thegamespodcast. Bonus material is posted to Instagram, so be sure to follow at the games podcast while you're there if you enjoyed this episode i would so appreciate it if you could share it with your friends or leave a rating or a review it means a lot special thanks to rebecca brewster stevenson for helping edit the script and to stephen Kratz for providing guidance on the subject matter thanks for listening and see you next time